of eternal life. And it is these that testify about me. And you're unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I don't receive glory from men, but I know you that you don't have the love of God in yourselves. I've come in my Father's name, and you don't receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? And you don't seek the glory that is from the one and only God. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Well, what keeps people from believing in Christ? I mean, why would anyone not want to have his sins forgiven and have eternal life as a free gift so that they do not come into judgment, but... Uh, go into the presence of God forever. I suppose there are many reasons, considering the Muslims this morning. Uh, they certainly have reasons that they would not believe. I think one reason they don't believe is they have widespread misconceptions about who Jesus is and what he came to do, his claims. Also, they uh, have a strong family structure, and if they were to believe in Christ, it would shame their family, and those cultures are very much shame-based, and so uh, they don't want to shame their families, and then their families would disown them, and uh, in many cases, of course, they are targeted for death the instant they believe, and so uh, the social pressure there, if you are a Muslim, is very great not to believe in Jesus. Others reject Christ here in America sometimes because they've been wounded by other Christians who have betrayed them in some way, uh, or a church, maybe a priest or a minister, God forbid, has abused them. But that is widespread, and they conclude that Christianity is a, a fake, a sham. Maybe their parents professed to be Christians and yet were abusive, or in many cases, Christian parents, well-meaning but misguided or overly strict with their kids, and it just builds resentment until finally the child has freedom due to their age and they explode and rebel. Others get into college and their faith gets undermined by a, uh, a radical atheistic professor. And we could go on and on and on. There are many, many reasons why people do not believe in Jesus. Now, back in John 3, 19 to 21, we saw another reason people don't believe in Jesus. He said, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil and they don't want to come to the light because it exposes their evil deeds. And so that was another reason. Now, in our text, Jesus here is confronting, we're breaking into the middle of a long discourse that began back in verse 19, but he is confronting these, these religious Jews who were opposing him, and as we see in verse 40, they were unwilling to come to him that they might receive eternal life. Uh, he asked them rhetorically in verse 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another? And you don't seek the glory that's from the one and only God. And 
Martin Lloyd-Jones has a sermon on that verse in which he points out how Jesus saved many very notorious and difficult types of sinners. And yet he despairs over this group and says, in effect, you guys are hopeless. I mean, how can you believe? And the Greek verb there points to their inability. It's literally, how are you able to believe? And the implied answer is, you are not. Now, Jesus has just given them adequate witnesses, as we saw in our last study, to back up his claim to be God. And so they didn't lack evidence. Also, they have the scriptures, and as he acknowledges in verse 39, they were zealous students of the scripture, and so they didn't lack information. They uh, had all of the knowledge of the Old Testament that pointed to Messiah, um, So what was their problem? What kept them from believing in Christ? Now, the answer I'm going to share with you, it took me a long time to come to in my study this week. I kept trying to think, how do all these verses fit together? What's the the unifying key to them? And so I'm going to spring it on you, and then I'm going to hope to show you in the course of the message why I think it's correct. Um, I, I believe that the root cause here that Jesus is hitting was their pride in their outward religiosity. And so that pride of their religion, and that they were religious outwardly, as opposed to seeking inward reality with God, that is the factor that Jesus hits here that's going to keep them, and you, if you have such a problem, from believing in Christ. I contend pride is the root sin of all other sins. You go through the Ten Commandments and every sin there is rooted in pride because when we disobey God, we are essentially saying, I know what's best for me. God doesn't know. His His law is certainly out of touch with my life and in my brilliance and in my wisdom, I know what's right with my life. And so we are asserting we know better than the almighty, omnipotent, omniscient God. That is pride. Pride deceives us into thinking that we can get into heaven because we're good enough. What an outrage. I mean, go through your life and count up your sins. Would you go into any court of law with a list that long against you and expect to be acquitted? And yet we think we're going to go into the court of the holy God of the universe with our good deeds and what's going to go okay. I mean, what pride we have. Pride also causes us to put on a good outward front. Oh, we're good Christians and we go to church and we greet everyone with a smile and they think, my, what a wonderful Christian he is. And and all the while we're hiding how we really are in our hearts. So that's pride. And it was pride, I believe, that kept these Jewish leaders from coming to Jesus, acknowledging him to be their Messiah, uh, repenting of their sins, and of course, tragically, as you know the story, eventually led them to murder the Prince of Peace, the, the Lord of Life. Now, their pride comes across in four ways in these verses. First of all, in verses 39 to 42, using the Bible to impress others rather than using the Bible to grow in humility and love for God is going to keep you 
from faith in Christ. Here I'm in verses 39 and 40 at first. Jesus says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Now, the Jewish rabbis were legendary in their study of the Bible, of the Scripture. They memorized large portions, sometimes even the whole of the Hebrew Scriptures, in Hebrew, of course. They copied it with extreme care, for which we can be thankful. That was proven when they discovered the the Dead Sea Scrolls, which uh, covered a gap of about 1,400 years in which there were no manuscripts and the errors were uh, minuscule. Um, many of them would actually count the number of letters in a book or even in the entire Old Testament, and they could tell you the center letter of every book and of, of the entire Old Testament. They knew it that well. And, uh, of course, that's commendable. But the problem was they took great pride in their learning. Uh, we'll see this when we get to John chapter 9. You have the man who was born blind, and Jesus heals him. And he goes to the Pharisees who demand, well, who did this on the Sabbath? They're going to nail him. And the man is brilliant. He uh, confronts them and says, look, if he weren't of God, he couldn't have done this. And here is their reply in chapter 9, verse 34. You were born entirely in sins, and you are you teaching us? I mean, that statement just reeks of pride. You know, we are the great learned men of Israel, and who are you, you no-good scum? You know, that's the, the intent that these men had. So they knew the Bible, but they missed Jesus because their great learning just fed their enormous pride. Jesus confronts the pride here in verses 41 and 42. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. Now, I struggled for a long time on what is the connection between verse 40 and verse 41 contextually. Uh, it's not immediately apparent when you read that over and over and over. Um, but I think the connection is that Jesus is contrasting his humility with their pride, especially their pride rooted in their knowledge of Scripture. When he says, I don't receive glory from man, what he means is, I'm not a man pleaser. I'm not living my life to get acclaim from people. I am living my life to please the Father. And uh, <clears throat> they, the Jews, of course, were not. Jesus, while he was on the earth, always lived to glorify the Father. These Jewish leaders, however, they were using their knowledge of Scripture not to glorify God, but to build up themselves. We're the learned ones. Who are you, you no good, untaught person? That kind of thing. It was pride. And note Jesus' words in verse 42. I know you. And that's still true, by the way. He knows you and me. He knows every thought we have. He knew every thought these men had. He could read their inner thoughts. He could. He knew correctly their motives. And he knew that they were studying the Scriptures for their own glory, not so that they would grow in love for God. And when he says, you do not have the love of God in yourselves, um, to get technical, it's an objective genitive. It means... 
you don't love God. We might translate it, you don't have the love for God in your own hearts. Uh, they were not loving God. And the connection between that and receiving glory from men is this. Jesus is saying, if you love God, you would seek God's glory because he's the only one deserving of glory. As it is, you guys love yourselves. And so you're out there seeking your own glory. It's just reeking with self-love and pride. And it shows that you are breaking the very first commandment, and that is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now... <clears throat> These verses bring up four reality checks for us that we need to apply. The first one is this. Um, are you studying the Scriptures at all? Now, Jesus didn't have to rebuke these Jews for studying the Scriptures. They were quite adept at that. But I wonder if He came to us, if His rebuke would not be, uh, you don't even study the Scriptures. So many American Christians, I discover have never even read the Bible through. Once. Not once. I, I think I told you one time in, in California, I, I was doing a message, and I referred to an incident that happened three times. It's reported three times in the Old Testament where King Hezekiah, Jerusalem was under siege. He took the letter from Sennacherib, went up into the temple, laid it open before the Lord and prayed, and God slew all the Sennacherib's army the next morning. And as I shared that story, I could look at the glazed look. You can tell as a pastor who's tracking with you and who's not. And I, I just looked out there and I said, you know what? These people don't have a clue what I'm talking about. So I said, all right, everybody bow your head. If you've never read that story in the Bible before, please raise your hand. Three-fourths of the hands went up. And this was a church that was heavily staffed with a campus organization staff. Uh, a lot of people in this church had been Christians most of their lives. This story occurs in Kings, it occurs in Chronicles, and it occurs in Isaiah. And I thought, these people aren't reading their Bible. They aren't reading their Bible. And so that's the first reality check is, are you even reading your Bible? If not, begin there. Um, get a study Bible if you need help, by the way, and uh, it'll give you all the notes you need to guide you through. Second reality check is this. Are you studying the Bible to reveal Jesus Christ to your soul? Now, there is nothing wrong and everything right with academic study and knowledge of the Bible. In other words, if we don't understand the the basics, the truth of the Bible, we're going to get tossed around by every wind of doctrine. And so I am not in any way uh, disparaging the knowledge of the Word in a correct interpretive sense. But I am saying this, the ultimate point of the Bible is not academic knowledge. The ultimate point of the Bible is to savor Jesus Christ. If I could use an illustration, my wife bakes a wonderful peach pie, fresh peach pie. Oh, my, you kill for that. And uh, she sets it before me, and I say, just a moment. And I get out my little test tube, and I start doing a chemical analysis of all of the ingredients that are in the fresh peach pie, and I can tell you how, how much of this and how much of that. And I mean, I'm missing the point. The point is taste it. Taste it. It's wonderful. Or to use another analogy, you go to a beautiful mountain lodge and it's got this great picture window. 
And uh, you're a glass man, and so you go over and you're analyzing, let's see, yep, that's uh, this type of glass. They got it at the Corningware Works in New York, and and it's uh, plexiglass, it's solid stuff, or it's plate glass, or and uh, so-and-so installed it properly. Yep, you're missing the point. Look through the window at the scenery out there. And Jesus is saying the point of the Bible is to see me. I am the object of the Bible and we are to see and savor Jesus Christ, as John Piper titled one of his books, uh, Enjoy Christ. The third reality check is this, is your study of the Bible then leading you to greater humility or to greater pride? Studying the Bible ought to show you, I am a great sinner and Christ is a greater Savior and lead to worship and, and lead to humility before him, but as you realize, oh my, his grace is amazing, Uh, and and you realize, I I should have been condemned, and yet by his grace I am saved, that should lead to humility. Uh, If you start thinking, yep, I know theology, man, I got it nailed, and that guy's an idiot, and I'm going to prove him wrong, you're off on the wrong track. You're off on the wrong track. And I've seen guys like that. Boy, they can use the Bible like a club, you know, and beat you down with their knowledge of the Bible. Even if you know the Bible well, you ought to be growing in graciousness in how you share it. Grace. Because you used to be an ignoramus. We all start that way. And if God by His grace has taught you a lot, then be gracious and kind to those who, who aren't so well taught. And like you would treat a little baby, bring them along gently and help them to grow up in the Lord. So studying the Bible ought to lead to more humility, not to pride. And then the fourth reality check is this. Is your study of the Bible causing you to love God more and more? That's Jesus' point here. He hits these Jews because they didn't love God. They were seeking their glory, not his glory. And they weren't seeking to to love and please him. And so a proper study of the Bible ought to show you the great love of God who sent the Savior for us when we were lost and, and we were rebels. And he intervened by his grace. And if that doesn't increase your love for God, you're not studying the Bible rightly. And so... That is the check. The pride of using the Bible to impress others is going to keep you from faith in Christ. The second thing Jesus hits them with that shows their pride is making God out to be what you want Him to be rather than submitting to Him as He is is going to keep you from faith in Christ. And here I'm in verse 43. Jesus says, I have come in my Father's name and you don't receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. He says, I've come in my Father's name. That refers at least to two things. To his authority and to his character. To all that God is. uh, To his attributes. And Jesus never diluted the truth to make himself popular with people. He never pulled his punches to please the crowd. He never flattered his hearers, read Matthew 23 and you'll see that, to make them think, well, God is pleased with you people, even though he knew God wasn't. 
And so Jesus gave the truth without sugarcoating it. Now, Jesus also never played to the crowds to be the kind of Messiah that he knew they wanted him to be. We'll see this in our next study in John 6. Jesus feeds the multitude there with the loaves and the fish. And uh, they want to make him king. They want to come and take him by force and make him king. Hot dog, this is just what we're about, isn't it? No. It says Jesus knew that, and so he deliberately withdrew from them to the mountain by himself alone. He wasn't going to play into their superficial allegiance. He wasn't going to be the kind of political Messiah they wanted him to be. He came to offer himself as the substitute for sinners. And so he never compromised the truth for the sake of popularity. Now, keep in mind, Jesus is here addressing a group of religious leaders. These guys knew the Bible. They were devoted to their religion. And yet Jesus is saying, you guys are going to follow false teachers. If another comes in his own name, you're going to receive him. Now, why would they do that when they know the Bible so well? Well, Jesus is saying that their rejection of him made them susceptible to these false messiahs. Back in Deuteronomy 13, the Lord says, there are going to be false teachers arise among you, and here's why I let that happen, to test your love for me. To test your love for me. And here Jesus hits them for their lack of love. And then again in Matthew 24, when Jesus is talking about the end times in the Olivet Discourse, he, he says that uh, there are going to be many false prophets and false messiahs who will arise and lead many astray. And then he says, and the love of many will grow cold. So again, this is all related to what we saw in uh, verse uh, 43, or 42, I should say, that they don't have the love of God in themselves. Now, you come back to ask again, well, why were these religious leaders in, in Judaism so susceptible to following false teachers. And I think at the root of it is this. They wanted a Messiah who fit their image of what Messiah would be. And who told them what they wanted to hear. And they didn't want to hear about their sin. They wanted to hear how wonderful they were. My, what good Jews you are. You know, you guys study the scriptures. You you fast, you pray, you go up to the temple, you give your money. My, what great, great people you are. That's what they wanted to hear. Jeremiah dealt with the same thing in Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 14. He, he confronted the false prophets in his day. He says, you, they healed the brokenness of God's people superficially, saying to people, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Paul warns the same thing. His final chapter that he wrote before he died to Timothy, he tells him to preach the word, and he says that involves reproving and rebuking, and exhorting. And then he, he goes on and says this, Second Timothy 4, 3 and 4, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Isn't that an interesting verb to use with sound doctrine? They will not endure it. Why do you have to endure it? Because sound doctrine often is not pleasant at the moment. It confronts you where you go, ah! You know, makes you uncomfortable. And then he goes on, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And they will turn away their ears from the truth 
and will turn aside to miss. And you can see the same thing today. If you want a huge church, focus on the positive. Give people strokes. Tell them how wonderful they are. Never talk about anything negative about sin. And you can pack a stadium in Houston. And it's happening. You know, when you're reading the Bible, make sure you read all of it. I'll admit there are parts that are hard. There are parts that are kind of unpleasant. But you see, my point is this. If all you do is pick out your favorite parts about the love of God, you're getting an imbalanced view. You gotta read about his judgment. You gotta read about his sovereignty. You gotta read about his holiness. And yes, read about his love, but read the, it all because the sum of God's word is truth. Um, and so, same thing applies, by the way. Some of you aren't from town here, but if you're looking for a church in another town, look for a church where the pastor preaches the whole counsel of God. And, works through the Bible systematically and covers it all, the unpleasant as well as the pleasant parts. Because if you go along with the popular trend, you'll have a big growing church and you'll go, wow, we're really with it, but it's going to be watered down. It's going to go along with the popular trend saying, well, homosexuality is okay. And it's going to go along with all the other popular trends that are carrying the day in our day. And it's going to be apostate. You've got to stick to all of the Bible. Uh, the name. The name of God. His authority, His character. A third way that the pride of these religious leaders comes through and kept them from faith in Christ is this. Using religion to try to impress others outwardly rather than seeking to please God on the heart level is going to keep you from faith in Christ. This is verse 44. Jesus asks, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you don't seek the glory that's from the one and only God? And as I said, the word can focuses on inability. It's saying that as long as you're seeking the glory from one another rather than seeking God's approval, it is impossible for you to believe in Jesus Christ. Later in John 12, um, John is going to mention that some of the Jewish leaders believed, you can put that in quotes, but their faith wasn't genuine for reasons similar to the problem that Jesus is confronting here. John 12, 42 and 43 says, Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. And then John gives the reason. For they love the approval of men, rather than the approval of God. Jesus confronts the same thing in Matthew 23, and if we had time, I'd read the whole chapter, but in verses 5 through 7, he, he says of these Pharisees, they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. There's the problem. For they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues, and respectful greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by men. And then later in that chapter, verse 25, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they're full of robbery and self-indulgence. And so their religion was to look good to others. Look at how much I'm giving. 
Oh, look at how often I fast and pray and all of these outward things. And the problem was God looks right through that down to their heart. And he sees their pride. And he's not impressed. And you see, that pride that was innate in them is innate in me. And it's innate in you. And we got to fight it. And we got to fight for reality on the heart level because we're all prone to this hypocrisy of, boy, I want others to think well of me. You know, I want them to think I'm a great Christian. And so we, we put on the front. And a lot of pastors fall into this, and it's why pastors' kids fall away. See, they, they, maybe they, pastors do this, by the way. They have a major blowout at home on Sunday morning. You know, some argument. Hurry up! I'm going to be late! You know, and so they rush to the car. And then, of course, as they drive in the parking lot, they got to put on the Christian smile. We're a wonderful Christian family. We're an example to all of you. And the kids are smelling hypocrisy from a mile away. And when they get old enough, they say, I don't need that. And they rebel. Now, I'm not suggesting we all hang out our dirty laundry, but I am saying this. we got to have reality with God on the daily level, on the heart level, on the relational level at home. And we need to be honest and genuine and humble about our shortcomings and our failures. Now, I'm not going to quote William Barclay without a disclaimer because the guy was a heretic on some things. He denied the deity of Jesus and other uh, serious things. But he had some good comments here, so I'm going to quote him. He says this, So long as a man measures himself against his fellow men, he will be well content. But the point is not, am I as good as my neighbor? The point is, am I as good as God? What, what do I look like to him? So long as we judge ourselves by human comparisons, there's plenty of room for self-satisfaction that kills faith. For faith is born of the sense of need. But when we compare ourselves with Jesus Christ, we're humbled to the dust. And then faith is born, for there is nothing left to do but trust to the mercy of God. And so the antidote to this deadly sin of hypocrisy is deal with your sin on the heart level before God every day. See, don't harbor secret sins thinking, God doesn't see them. Everybody thinks I'm a great Christian. No, God does see them. And if you're struggling, just be honest enough to admit to a brother or sister, hey, would you pray for me? I'm struggling here. You know, or if you're angry, don't pretend that you're not. I, I had a, an elder in California sitting in my office. The veins on his neck were bulging. His face was red. His fists were clenched. And he said, I am not angry. You know, and I just went, wow, wow. Okay. You know, if you're depressed, just confess it and say, Lord, I need your joy. Would you restore to me the joy of my salvation? If you've sinned, first confess to the Lord and then go to the one you're wrong. Even if it's your kids, by the way. You know, if you've been angry at them and yelled at them or God forbid, but if, if you've hit them out of anger, just humble yourself and go to your kids and say, I was so wrong. I was wrong. Would you please forgive me? And, and I've asked God to forgive me. And you know what? Your kids will see reality with God. Not hypocrisy. They'll say, wow, dad's a sinner, but he's saved and he's walking with the Lord. 
And that's the only way to be. And uh, in every area of life, just deal with, with your sin before God and before others. And that's what Paul did. He said in Acts 24, 16, he was bearing witness to Festus here, or Felix. He says, I, I do, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. So don't use your religion to try and impress other people. The point is, do business with God every day on the heart level. On the heart level. So, first of all then, overall, Jesus is saying this pride of, of outward religion is the enemy, as opposed to inward reality with God. It's going to keep you from faith in Christ. And the first way he shows that is using the Bible to impress others, rather than growing in humility and love for God. Also, this outward religion can stem from trying to make God what you want him to be, rather than submitting to him as he is revealed in his word of truth. And it can use the form then of taking your religion and using it to impress others outwardly. There's a final way, and that's in verses 45 to 47, and that is, taking pride in your outward religious performance rather than letting God's law drive you to Christ is going to keep you from faith in Him. Notice verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you don't believe his writings... How will you believe my words? Now, just as an aside, let me point out, Jesus happened to believe that Moses wrote the books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, uh, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, There are many liberal scholars who deny that Moses wrote the books of Moses. They're smarter than Jesus was, but um, Jesus happened to believe that Moses wrote them. And if you attack the Old Testament, you're attacking Jesus because Jesus says, Moses wrote about me. So we have to honor the Old Testament. Now, the irony here is these Jews claim to believe in Moses. They studied Moses extensively. They even added to the commandments that Moses gave in the Old Testament. And yet Jesus says, you missed the point. You missed the point. If you really understood Moses, you'd be believing in me, because that's what Moses was writing about. Now, you say, well, how did Moses write about Jesus? I alluded to this last time, just a quick review. Genesis 3.15, where God tells Adam and Eve right after the fall that the seed of the woman will bruise the serpent's head. That's a prophecy about Jesus, the seed of the woman conquering Satan at the cross. Then God clothes Adam and Eve with animal skins, and I cannot uh, doubt that he told them that it was all about how he would cover the sins of the world by shedding the blood of his lamb, the lamb of God, Jesus, who takes away the sin of the world. You get to Abraham, and uh, well, of course, I'm skipping Noah, and that's a beautiful picture, the ark of God delivering through judgment. Uh, you get to Abraham, and God promises all the nations will be blessed in your seed. Paul says the seed of Abraham is Christ. Uh, And then God tells Abraham in Genesis 22, sacrifice your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. 
And what a picture of God giving his only son on the cross. Of course, he provided the ram there so that Abraham didn't have to follow through. You get to Exodus, the Passover. That's all about Christ. Uh, the the um, sacrifices uh, system in the Old Testament, all about Christ. The tabernacle, all about Christ. The... Uh, rock that followed them and provided water in the wilderness. Paul says that was Christ, the rock. Uh, The manna, that's Christ. We'll see that in chapter 6. I am the bread of life. I'm the true manna that comes down from heaven to give life to the world. I mean, all through the Old Testament, uh, through the books of Moses and on through the prophets and the Psalms, we have a picture of Christ. And this law of Moses that these Jews profess to believe in should have convicted them of their sin and made them long for the one that Isaiah wrote about who would be uh, pierced through for their transgressions and crushed for their iniquities. It should have served as a tutor, as Paul says, to lead them to faith in Christ because, as he says in Romans 10.4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to all who believe. But they're focused on their outward performance. They're keeping the outward aspects of the law, but not the inward aspect. And uh, because of that, they miss Jesus. You see the same thing, by the way, in the rich young ruler. I've kept all this from my youth up. Sure, outwardly he had. And Jesus goes for the jugular and says, go sell everything you have. Why did he say that? He was focusing on the man's heart. He was covetous. He'd broken the Tenth Commandment. He had other gods before the Lord is God. See, it's the heart. And so this law that they took pride in is going to be the very thing that rises up on the Day of Judgment and says you're guilty, 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 ten times guilty, breaking every commandment because they had it outwardly, but not in the heart. And so what I'm saying is this, if you take pride in your Christian performance, you're missing it. Boy, I had my quiet time seven times this week. I'm more spiritual than so-and-so, you know? And I prayed for 30 minutes yesterday. Wow, aren't I spiritual? And you can start racking them up, all these outward things, you see. I think John Calvin put it well. He said this, He who in reality presents himself before God as his judge must of necessity fall down humbled, and dismayed, and finding nothing in himself on which he can place reliance. And so, as Paul put it, we should put no confidence in the flesh. Instead, we must glory in Christ Jesus and in his grace, not on our religious performance. Now, I don't know any of your hearts this morning. I know mine fairly well. And I know that the sin of pride lures, raises its ugly head in my heart daily, many times, and I have to judge it. And uh, so Paul's words are apropos. In 2 Corinthians 13, 5, he said this, Test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourself. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, indeed, you fail the test? Well, there are more test questions than these, but let me give you four of them based on this message. First, examine how how do you use the Bible? Is it to impress others 
Or does the Bible cause you daily to grow in humility and in love for God? That's the point of the Bible. Second question, do you gladly embrace who God is as revealed in all of Scripture rather than picking out who you want him to be? Third question, ask yourself, am I seeking glory from others? Is that what I'm all about, is looking good to everyone else? Or am I really seeking to please God on the heart level? I want my heart, Lord, to be right with you. And then the last question, examine whether you take pride in your outward religious performance rather than boasting in Christ and the cross. May I never boast, Paul says, except in the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ, through which I've been crucified to the world and the world to me. All of these things can keep us from genuine faith in Christ, so I pray that we'll all make sure we pass the test. Dear Father, I thank you for the Lord Jesus who told it like it was, willing to come, take on the form of a bondservant, be obedient to death, even death on a cross, that he might redeem all who believe in him. I pray if any are here that are playing games, playing to the crowd and not living on the heart level before you, that your word this morning would convict them of sin and righteousness and judgment and cause them to flee to the cross where there is grace for the chief of sinners. Thank you that Paul was a proud Pharisee and he found grace. And Lord, I pray that all of those hearing me this morning would experience the abundant grace in Christ and that all of us would live daily humbled before you Rejoicing in the cross for Jesus' sake.